morning. As you notice, Pastor is not here. Uh, we didn't do any kind of a post on social media, but he's actually been in the hospital since Friday night. Uh, drove himself to the ER uh, in Southington at Bradley Hospital. Sometime late Friday night, early Saturday morning, they transferred him to Hartford by ambulance. Um, the one positive is they're pretty sure it's not as hard which we've heard about, you know, 45 times at this point, but they're actually starting to look elsewhere. Uh, he had a few other numbers uh, through some blood tests that were coming back elevated. They're actually checking. Part of the reason he's still in this morning, um, they're going to run rerun a few tests this morning. They He might have pancreatitis again, um, which he, if you remember about 10 years or so ago, he had, and it was quite bad. He was in and out of the hospital quite a bit. Um, so they are He's got a team of doctors. They're actually looking outside of his heart this time around, and hopefully, please pray that they find some answers. We don't really even care what they are at this point. We just need to know what it is so that we can figure out a way forward. So uh, likely he is going to be in the hospital until possible most likely tomorrow, uh, if not longer. So please keep him in your prayers. And again, it's not on social media because he decided not to. And you know, I like my job and my dad, so I don't want to get fired. Uh, do, do have a couple other prayer requests. If you're in the habit of writing those down, I encourage you to write them down. Nick Bender, uh, he's been on the prayer list for the last two weeks or so. That is uh, the Lacombe son-in-law. He got moved to Penn Hospital. He's Nick's had heart issues since he was a little kid, uh, multiple surgeries. He has built up, for whatever reason, built up massive, massive amounts of fluid on his legs and he can't walk, he's in extreme amounts of pain. They haven't been able to lower the whatever inflammation or fluid buildup is happening. Uh, he did get transferred, like I said, to Penn Hospital, so just pray that they can get that under control. Uh, he's not very old. He might be like mid to late 20s at best. Um, so please keep Nick in your prayers. And then Mr. Reamers, you have outpatient surgery tomorrow, is that correct? So please keep Mr. Reamers in your prayers with that. And we've got a whole bunch of people that have been in and out sick with all the things. Uh, we've had uh, COVID and RSV and flu and everything under the sun. So just pray for each other. And pastor asked this every time. We're going to say it he, this morning in uh, the main service again. How many of you have something you need prayed about? That's literally every hand in the room. We've all got a battle of some kind. It could be small. It could be big. What could be big to us might be small to somebody else and vice versa. We need to pray for each other. So let's take a few moments this morning. We're just going to pray to start Sunday school, and we'll move forward. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be here uh, in this place on this day. Lord, I'm, I'm asking you to heal a handful of people right off the bat. Lord, uh, Nick Bender's been in the hospital for the better part of two weeks now, and the doctors can't quite figure out what's happening, and I'm asking you, Lord, to give the doctors at this new hospital some wisdom. Uh, to get him the help that he needs so that he can get the fluid buildup and the pain under control so he can go back to uh, working in the ministry that he works at there in New Jersey, Lord. And just thank you for his faithfulness in spite of all of that. And Lord, we're asking you to, again, help Pastor. I know he's, this has been kind of a repeat story, unfortunately, for the last year and a half. But Lord, we're begging you to give the doctors some wisdom, give them the answers, uh, no matter what the, that answer may be, that we can move forward. Uh, with some type of diagnosis, Lord. And just again, thank you for his faithfulness in spite of everything that's happening, Lord. I'm asking you to uh, take away his pain this morning as he's sitting there in the hospital and just help him to have a, a good day today and help him to get some answers. And Lord, help Mr. Ramers tomorrow with surgery. Give the doctors wisdom there. Help him to recover quickly. And Lord, bless us. We, we, we're here today because we need something from you. 
I'm asking you to bless all the Sunday school classes from the little ones all the way up to here with the adults, Lord. I'm just asking you to give each teacher the right words to say. Help us to walk away with something something unique, something that we can mull over and meditate on in the coming days and weeks, Lord. And again, thank you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A couple quick announcements before we jump in. If you want to turn to Judges chapter 3, while we get there, Judges chapter 3. Uh, we do have a handful of announcements. Uh, soul winning is this Friday at 345 for the teenagers and then 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturdays. We'd love to have you come out. Uh, if you haven't already gotten a bulletin, we'll pass those out in the next service or they're on the back table. There is a little uh, church directory information sheet in there. It's a little half page. We need everybody to fill this out no matter how long you've been here. Um, if you've already filled this one out, don't do it again. I say that because we asked you to sign up for texting, and you know, 14 signups later, you're, you're on. If you filled this out once, you are good. If you haven't filled it out, please put it in the offering plate this morning. Put it in the gray box uh, outside the office, or you can even just put it directly on Mrs. Clack's desk. We do need, please fill out all of this information. We've already had at least half a dozen that only have your name. Come on, folks. You're defeating the purpose because you're going to be the same one that complains when we don't sing happy birthday to you, you know, six months from now or three days ago, whatever it might be. Please fill this out in its entirety. We would greatly appreciate that. Uh, church directories, that, the due date on that is January 29th. We are going to get the church directory updated for 2023 immediately after that. Um, if anybody is interested, uh, volleyball sign up ends today. Uh, again, there are a couple of rules you do need to check out. Uh, you need to be a regularly attending member and all those other things, but the uh, information is out on the bulletin board. If you have any questions, you can see Ken Lacombe. Again, today is the last day to sign up for that. And I think that's all the major announcements that we have for at least, yeah, at least Sunday school. The only other one I can actually think of is we do need some more help in nurseries and junior church. And I know it sounds like about every year at this time we make that announcement. It's because about every year at this time we need more help. Um, we need some help in junior church and nursery. It's not hard. You can be on there just once a month, every other week, whatever works for your schedule. But we could use some help. That includes men and ladies uh, for the junior church, uh, ladies for the nursery. If you are interested, please, you can come see me. You can see Carrier Banowitz or Mrs. Weinshank. Uh, we'd love to be able to help you out with that. Or I, we'd love you to help us out with that. Let me phrase that properly there. Um, judges chapter 3. Let's go ahead and jump in. Last week we talked about Othniel. We're introduced to our very first judge. Othniel was related to what other famous person in your Bible? Caleb. How was he related to him? Son-in-law. He married his daughter. Remember the daughter, Aksha? She was the, the famous one. That, hey, Dad, you gave me this. That's cool, but I want more. And he gave it to her, which is pretty cool. She's a very bold lady. And Othniel had to have been along that same vein because he was chosen by God to lead Israel as a judge for how long? Forty years. Long time. Okay? which gives us an indication that Othniel lived to be fairly old. Well, today we're going to actually jump right into judge number two. The first three judges, all three of them are listed right here in this chapter three. Uh, one of them we're going to get to hopefully today only gets one verse. He's actually considered a minor judge, just like your Bible has what are considered minor prophets, and that's not because they did less for God. It's just God chose for whatever reason to record less information about them. Are we okay with that? Everybody's important to God. Okay, I, I'm going to throw that out there right now. We use the word minor and, oh, he must not matter. He's in the Bible and you and I aren't. So 
he wins, okay? Uh, look at Judges chapter 3, verse number 12. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Okay? Jump back with me to verse 11 for just a split second. And the land had rest 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And immediately we jump into verse 12 again. The children of Israel did evil again. That quickly. This happens over and over and over again. God delivers them, the people do right, while their leader is there. I've had the privilege of teaching off and on in different levels for the last 15 and a half years. Students are great when the teacher is there. As soon as the teacher walks out of the room or as simply as turns around to write on the board, they're gone. If they can't see us, it's free reign. If you've ever been in a room with more than like, you know, six children that aren't yours, you know how this goes, okay? Unfortunately, you've got about six and a half million Jews that like, oh, the leader's gone. Cool. We can do whatever we want. You do realize God's word still applies no matter who's around. The children of Israel just didn't quite figure that out for a really long time. And the Lord strengthened, this is verse 12, Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Again, that's kind of an interesting phrase. The Lord strengthened Eglon. God gave this guy the ability to take over his people. Remember, God promised, I'm going to test you over and over and over again here to see if you're going to serve me and do what's right. And clearly, they can't learn the lesson. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. Anybody remember, what is the city of palm trees? Jericho. Why would he go after Jericho of all places? Jericho's already been defeated. Remember, the walls have fallen down. Jericho's nothing like what it had been. But this is nearly a century, by the way, after the walls of Jericho had fallen down. Why would Eglon go after Jericho of all places? It was still the biggest city in Canaan. If you're going to go after anything, wouldn't you go after the biggest one first? So they're going after the, yeah, going after the big fish because everything else kind of will fall into place after that. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So let's take a very quick break down here and get you like a little, a little bit of history on these three countries. You realize there's three listed here. Eglon is the king of what country? Moab. Thank you. All the way in the back with the cool beret. Appreciate that. Okay. What's the next country listed? Ammon. Wow. Are we okay this morning? Okay, when it's when I do like junior church or little kids, I make them like stand up, stand to sit down. We could we could do those we can do one of those songs if you want. Mike's really a big fan of those. So come on. Okay, we've got Moab, Ammon. What's the third one? Amalek. Okay, those are the bad guys. Israel's kind of implied because they're the ones being taken over here. But those three countries, Moab, by the way, historically Moab had actually only been a country if you will, like a, a full-blown city-state, tiny little empire-type country, according to historical record, for about 50 years at this point. They were the new kid on the block. They were, they were the up-and-comer. Moab had established itself as a nation around the same time that Israel had. 
about 50 or so years prior to this. Do you know why Moab was allowed to establish itself as a nation? Because Israel didn't do the job properly. Had Israel destroyed all of their enemies, Moab would have been one of them, and they would have never grown to the point where they could come back and take over. Are we okay? Ammon. Ammon is just northeast of Moab. Moab is actually just east of where the Dead Sea is at. And Moab is a little bit farther north of that. They had been around for about 50 years prior to Israel coming in. So had the Israelites actually followed God faithfully the first time when they, were, when they crossed the Red Sea? And you remember, they came up to the Promised Land, sent the 12 spies, and they were like, we can't do it. That was right around the time that Ammon was actually setting themselves up in place. Are we okay so far? So again, fairly new country, if you will, in the whole scheme of life. And then the Amalekites. The Amalekites have already come up against Israel once before. Does anybody remember when and where? I know, this is, this is it's, it's 10, 16 in the morning, and I've asked like nine questions. Your coffee hasn't had a chance to sink in yet. I am so sorry, but it is Sunday school, okay? When and where? Anybody, even generically, when and where have the Israelites faced the Amalekites before? No, even before that. This was one of the first enemies they fought after they crossed the Red Sea. They crossed the Red Sea after, right after they had left Egypt. They've done the 12 spies, and we're talking within possibly the first like three months of freedom they fought the Amalekites. The Amalekites have become and will become a thorn in the side of Israel for generations to come. They finally get wiped off the map due to David later on, like 500 years later here. But the Amalekites, so we've got, and the Amalekites are farther south. So you've got right here, Moab, a little farther north here, you've got Ammon, and then you've got the Amalekites coming in from this side. They pincer moved them. They covered them from all sides, which gives us some indication Eglon's a relatively intelligent human being here. You realize that he got the right enemies together at the right time to take over the children of Israel. Now, it also, we know Eglon may not have been as smart as I'm giving him credit for. Why? Because it tells us right there in uh, the beginning of verse 12, the Lord strengthened Eglon. God put all these pieces in place. Eglon may not have been able to recognize that. His pride may have told him he was doing this, but God put all these pieces in place. Because God's got all of it under control, good, bad, or otherwise. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows how it's going to turn out because he's already been there, which is the coolest part about anything you've ever studied about God. And I know using the word cool and God don't go well together, but the fact that God already knows how everything turns out, that's pretty cool. Why do you think we're supposed to trust in him? Because he already knows how it ends. We can't even figure out how to, like, stay awake in Sunday school, and he already knows how it ends. you got to stay awake here in Sunday school. I'm going to make you, like, Mr. Ball's seen it in chapel. We stand up and we sit down. We'll, we'll do that. We'll play heads or tails. I'll bring candy. Would that help? Okay. Candy it is. We're bringing candy next week just for Mrs. Spencer. Okay. All right. Look at verse 15 with me. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord God, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. This is what's, we've already seen this once. They sinned, they go into some level of captivity or servitude. They cry out, God hears their cry. And because he's such a good God, no matter what we do, he loves us enough to rescue us when we need it the most. He sends them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. 
Please mark that. That's going to be an important part of this story. <clears throat> and by him, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. So we're introduced to this man, Ehud. We know two things about him. Well, two and a half things. I'll get to the half in a minute. First thing we know, he's a Benjamite. Anybody know anything important about the tribe of Benjamin? They were the smallest tribe. So he is of the smallest tribe. So God is picking out of what should be the weakest group of people to deliver the Israelites. It's God's way of proving he can use anybody from anywhere to do his will at any time. God also gives us another little bit of interesting indication. A man left-handed. Okay, even in today's world, it's less than 10% of the world's population is left-handed. Any lefties in here? Oh, good. We got like two weirdos. Nice. Hi. Hey, pastor's not here, so I can say things like that because he's a lefty. Hey, but even in today's world, a, a left-handed person is, is still, within reason, fairly unique. Um, last year in my wife's kindergarten class, she had 12 students. Five of them were lefties. That's, that's, that's actually kind of strange odds. Mrs. Weinshank stuck with all them now. And thankfully, my wife's uh, teaching, teacher's aide was a lefty. So when it came time for like writing and cursive, there was somebody in there that actually knew how to help them. Because you do realize we write differently, right hand and left hand. My dad is actually, he was just young enough that he was one right, uh, right after they stopped tying your left hand to your side and forcing you to learn how to write right-handed. I don't know if you know this. Pastor's got skills. You do know, you, we okay? He's not here, so I can tell you all this stuff. I actually asked him this week, can you be my illustration on Sunday? I think that's why he's in the hospital. He didn't want to be my illustration. I think he was afraid of what would happen. I don't even have like belly button stories or weird bathroom stories like he has on me. So, but my dad, my dad's left-handed. My dad's actually almost completely ambidextrous. Did you know that? He can write left and right-handed. On a whiteboard or a chalkboard, he can write both hands, like pick one up and mid-sentence, mid-word. It's pretty amazing. He's got some skills there. But Ehud being left-handed, statistically, that's an anomaly. Genetically for him, it's not. Go with me to Judges chapter 20. Okay? Towards the end of this particular book, we're going to find out that the Benjamites had some funky genetics when it came to the Israelites in, as a whole. Judges chapter 20 and look at verse 15. And the children of Benjamin were numbered at that time out of the cities, 20 and 6,000 men that drew swords. So it gives us an indication that of Israel's army, 26,000 were Benjamites, okay, of these soldiers beside the inhabitants of Gibeah, which were numbered 700 chosen men. Among all this people, there were 700 chosen men left-handed. Everyone could sling stones at an hair breadth and not miss. So it's giving us an indication that at least amongst the Benjamites, Ehud wasn't unique. That was just kind of normal. The fact that God decided to put that in for us gives us some indication that amongst all of Israel, yes, he was a bit unique. You realize even amongst the Benjamites, according to Judges chapter 20, you've got 700 out of 26,000. That's not... That's not huge odds there. By the way, that follows basic statistics of left-handed versus right-handed people for the most part. Just thought I'd throw that out there. But it, amongst the Benjamites, for whatever reason, we've got more left-handed people, and God chose to give us an indication of that, which is kind of intriguing. I, again, I don't know why God chose that, but it's an interesting note. So he's this left-handed guy. And look at, go back to Judges chapter 3 and look at verse 15. And by him, the children of Israel sent 
a present. Now, this wasn't their way of, oh, Eglon, you're such a great overlord. Any indication, anybody have an idea, I should say, of what this present probably was? It's not a birthday present. It's not Hanukkah. That didn't exist yet. Kwanzaa's not real now, so it wasn't that. Anybody? This was probably their taxes. This was probably something along the lines of their yearly tribute. They didn't pay taxes like you and I do, where it comes out of every paycheck or it comes out of, uh, like, your, your mortgage taxes for your, your house, your property taxes come out on a quarterly basis. It wasn't like that. Usually you paid your taxes or tribute on a yearly scale. Well, why would they do that? Because you don't know what your harvest is going to be. You don't know how many sheep you're going to, are going to have lambs this season. So you paid your taxes at the end of harvest time, at the end of birthing season with sheep or camels or whatever you might be a farmer of. So Ehud is tasked with giving the tribute, the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Are we okay with this? Okay, let's keep moving forward. Look at verse 16. And Ehud made a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to, the, to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal, and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And let's pause here. This is setting the scene for what could be a really epic action movie. Okay? I know. A bunch of you just thought, this kid's crazy why is he teaching Sunday school but think about the way God had this written we're getting into like b-roll some side story here Ehud made a dagger which had two edges so we've got this two-edged dagger and I've heard this taught one of two ways and if you look it up Bible historians debate on this the way it's written a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length that could be that the the edges were a cubit length or the dagger itself was of, of a cubit length so I bought a dagger. It was a great excuse to buy a dagger, okay? And I didn't know which one, and I didn't, I don't need two. So I bought one that has a cubit length blade. This is actually sharp. I found that out the hard way. Um, but that would be a dagger of a cubit length. That's a long dagger. I, again, I don't know. The, I, I can't be definitive where the Bible isn't. It says, uh, which had two edges of a cubit length. Is that the dagger's length? Is that the edge's length? I bought one with the edge's length being a cubit. But that thing's pretty gnarly. Now, this one's got like a composite nylon handle. I'm pretty sure his didn't, okay? Um, but that's pretty gnarly. And the Bible gives us an indication. I got to step away from the mic for a second. That he... from 
about here to the tip, that would have maybe fit a little bit better. Or it might give us an indication that Ehud might have been a big dude. It's one of those two. And again, I'm not going to be definitive because the Bible's not. I'm not going to guess here. But he's got this big old gnarly two-edged sword that he made. Does anybody know how long in the ancient world it took to make one valid sword or dagger? Because this would have been pre-Bronze Age. This would have been early, early Iron Age. Ehud was working this plan for a couple of months minimum. So this is well thought out in order to make a dagger for one specific dude. And why did he need to make this dagger so big? Well, jump down to the very last part of verse 17. And Eglon was a very fat man. By the way, I don't care who you are. That's not a dagger. This is a short sword. Okay? This is long. Okay? This is a very, very large item here. Okay, Again, I am not a huge person. I'm five foot six, but I'm also not a skinny boy. Okay? Ehud's making this for one person, for one purpose. You realize? You, you ever had that thing, that argument, that problem with somebody that ate at you and ate at you? It's the only thing you thought about when you're driving alone in the car. It's the only thing you thought about when you're in the shower. And you've won this argument that's already been over. You've won it a couple different ways in your head for months and months and months because it's the only thing you can think on and focus on. That's what Ehud's doing every time he's taking this hammer and smashing this thing after he heats up the iron. I'm going to get rid of this guy. Gives us an indication that Ehud might have had an anger issue. Maybe. Or Ehud might have been a very driven man. To stay on task for one simple project, to make one dagger, one blade, for one purpose and one person. And the Bible gives us an interesting indication here. He girded it on his right thigh. Homie's left-handed and his right thigh. There's no way around it. That's an awkward way to get that up and down. It says it's girded on his right thigh. Not holstered like a sword like you and I would do. In Bible days, they did not holster swords like this. Like we think of like knights in shining armor, uh, chivalry, all that kind of stuff. They usually actually strapped them down onto the leg, which gives us an indication left-handed. I'm sorry for those watching online. If you can't hear me, I'm sorry. Okay? Pastor was supposed to be the left-handed guy, and again, he didn't want to do it, so he went to the hospital instead. Okay? So Ehud shows up, says he's got this present. Well, he's got this dagger. Wouldn't you think, if you're going to see the king, they're going to do some kind of a pat-down or security or something like that? Think about it. He's left-handed, and there's no visible sword or knife on his left side. Maybe they didn't even think to check his right side. If you ever think about that, just it, it might not be a great indicator. They also wore a lot of pretty loose layers. It'd be a lot easier to hide a sword than it would be today. Just a thought. Hey, uh, look at verse uh, 19. But he himself, okay, so they've given the present, 
Eglon sends everybody away. This gives us an indication. Look at verse uh, 18, the ten tail end of it. He sent away the people that bear the present, meaning Ehud's not alone on this present delivery. A lot of times in the ancient world, when a present tribute, taxes, whatever it may have been, was given to a king, there was a huge amount of like pomp and circumstance given to this. You realize that Eglon, with the help of Am uh, Ammon and Amalek, has taken over the children of Israel, who were the largest enemy in the area. When they're giving their tribute, this is not a small amount of stuff. How many tribes does Israel have? Twelve. Six and a half million people paying taxes at one time. This is a large entourage, more than likely. Are we okay? Right, so lots of stuff. This gives us an indication that this was more than likely things like food, wool, probably not money so much. People didn't deal in money like we do today near as much. A lot of stuff back then was bartering. I'll give you this much grain for that sheep. And that was kind of think how things work. So this group, this is a group of people. Eglon's like, cool, thanks for the stuff. Sends them away. Verse 19. But he turned himself again. This would be Ehud from the quarries that were by Gilgal. Ehud leaves, turns around, and comes back alone and says to the king, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king. I got some information for you. Okay, this is a couple thousand years ago, three, four thousand years ago. How important is information today? The information about you that your cell phone collects is worth a lot of money. It's worth a lot of money. That's why data breaches are so drastic. Uh, one of the last major data breaches that happened was Equifax, the company that helps keep track of your credit score. They lost 45 million customers' data. They're, they were forced to pay like a half a billion dollar settlement. I got $14. Woo. Took me like months to scrub my information out, but I got 14 bucks for it, so thanks guys. Your information's important. This guy is in charge, and anybody remember, we read it before, how long has Eglon been in charge at this point? We read it. 18 years. 18 years he's been in charge. Hey, I've got something to tell you. You realize that 18 years in charge of a group of people that are likely larger in number than you are, and one of theirs tells you he's got something secretly to tell you, that's an intriguing thing right there. And look at what the king does. Keep silence. Be quiet. Not because he doesn't want to hear it, because this might be important. All the, it, it, this, the verse keeps going, and all that stood by him went out from him. He kicks everybody out. I don't want anybody else to know what you're about to say. Ehud is a smart dude. He knows how to play his cards very well. We all know how this story ends. Eglon dies. How do you get access to kill the most important man in your entire area? By getting him alone. Well, how do you do that? You tell him you have secret information for him. Interesting. Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. I told you. It's like the setup for an action movie. Could you just imagine, like, some Sylvester Stallone character? I've got a message from God. He's just got, like, this deep, you know, smoker's voice, probably due to all the testosterone he's taken. I don't know what it is. But 
Ehud just, I have a message from God. And he's like, oh, it wasn't a good message, by the way, because there's no indication, by the way, at any point after this that Ehud talks. So this message from God is a very physical message. And he arose out of his seat, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh. Again, the Bible gives us a direct indication sure exactly which way because I wasn't there and God didn't provide a Polaroid of the events but he pulls this out with his left hand daggers coming off of his right thigh and thrust it into his belly and the haft that's this area right here that keeps your hand in place from hitting the blade the haft also went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. Now this particular short sword that I got doesn't have a very big haft. In the ancient world, most of the time, this particular section was fairly ornate and usually pretty wide. Okay? So I would say probably several inches wider than this is. The Bible gives us the indication this went in all the way up to here, up to like right where his hand is at, and Ehud can't get it back out. Again, this gives us an idea of how big this dude is. This is going all the way in. The Bible says it was a cubit length, and again, I don't know if that was the blade or the entire thing of the dagger, but he's up to his hand, the fat is closing around it, and he can't get it back out, so he just leaves it there. He just spent months making this one tool to leave it in this chunky dude's belly. By the way, it does give us an indication of just how thick Ehud may, or Eglon had to have been. The Bible calls him a very fat man. Again, I'm at about 180 pounds, 5'6". Even if it was just a cubit length, he would have put the handle about here. That would have made Eglon probably somewhere around 400 pounds. That's a big dude. That's really thick. And the Bible goes on. This is my favorite, favorite thing to teach little kids. I love this part. So that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. He perforated his bowels. And Eglon, by the way, the summer parlor, that's his bathroom. He decided to have a private meeting with Ehud in the bathroom. That's weird. Okay. If anybody asks you for a private meeting in the bathroom, run away, okay? Because you're going to end up on the news, and it is not good, okay? That's what happens here. The Bible, I love how specific the Bible is. And the dirt came out. I love that. That's poop, if you didn't know where we were going, okay? I was trying to avoid that word, but a few people were still just staring at me like, cool, okay. All right. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. Remember, Eglon sent everybody else out. It's just he, Eglon, and Ehud in here, stabs him. Could you imagine that scene? You're just... Ew. Ew. Clean up on aisle me. Ew. Probably wipes himself up, sneaks out, locks the door. And when he was gone, his servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. They, everybody comes back. It's been a few minutes. They haven't heard anything. They come back. Oh, the doors are locked. He's probably using the bathroom. That's literally what that means. He covereth his feet. He put his robes down to go number two. And everybody's just like, oh, he's probably using the bathroom. So they wait. 
verse 25, and they tarried till they were ashamed. Okay. He's been in there way too long, which I'm pretty sure every wife in this room has said about your husband at least once in your marriage. Uh, he's been in there way too long. And they were ashamed. That, that gives us some indication. These guys have been waiting a while for Eglon, and he's just... Now, granted, he's a big dude. Might have been a long bathroom break. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. Could you imagine that scene? I told you, this is like an action movie right here. They're just waiting. Should we check on him? No. No, sometimes he takes a while. I mean, they're, they're his servants. They know him. They know his actions. They know his timing. They know everything about him. Okay, it's been a while. Should we go check the sundial? How long's it been? All right. Man, we... Should we go in there? I'm not going in there. You go in there. You, you, come on, think about it. That's exactly what would have happened. And then finally, somebody gets the key, and they're like, oh, this big dude's laying there dead. There's probably blood everywhere. There's clearly <clears throat> dirt everywhere. This is a messy, nasty scene. They come in. And Ehud escaped while they tarried, verse 26, and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Sirath. Ehud's run away during this entire time. And it gives us an indication. I want to throw a little... I'm going to give you an ounce of bishology, okay? I can't speak definitively, but I can give you an indication. There's two mentions in here in verse, I believe it's 19. Yeah, verse 19 says he turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal. And then again in verse 26, escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries. That's the exact same spot mentioned twice. That's where rocks are dug up. That's where rocks are processed. Jewish history indicates that this is where Joshua set up those monuments outside of the Jordan River to remind the people what God had done. He's gone past this twice. It's giving us a better indication of where he's at, meaning Eglon had set up residence. His summer parlor, as the Bible calls it, was probably in Jericho. Remember, he had taken over the city of palm trees. The Bible tells us that. And he's in his summer, he's in his summer castle, if you will. Wouldn't it be nice to be rich enough to have a summer castle? He's in his summer castle. And based on that piece of evidence, Eglon was likely in Jericho. Are we okay? Just because of that. And again, I'm not given specifics because it just says quarries. Okay? But here's one thing I want you to take a note of. God comes into Eglon, or Ehud comes into Eglon and says, I have a message from God unto thee. God's message can be one of a couple things here. God's message sometimes is secret. The way God talks to Mr. Reamers might actually be different than me. He might be able to talk to Mr. Reamers in a still small voice. I'm an idiot, so he usually has to talk to me in a tornado. Why? Because I'm too dumb to catch the still small voice. It's still God. With that said, this is of no private interpretation you don't get to make up your own interpretation of God's word. God's word defines itself. And you should define God's word with God's word. But the way God speaks to you out of this word may be different than he speaks to me. Because there might be something I need to catch out of any particular passage that's different than what you need at the moment. So God's message sometimes can be secret. God's message must be received. Think about how we witness to somebody. It's a gift, and in order to take a gift, you have to receive it, no matter how that gift is given. The same goes with God's message. He can speak to you. You can come to church three times a week and never get anything, excuse me, anything out of it if you choose not to listen. And, and you know that's a choice. 
You can choose whether or not you listen. Some of you have been in here and in the entirety of Sunday school, you've been planning your next vacation. You've been thinking about what you're going to cook for lunch today. You've been thinking about how we're going to get laundry done and i got to go grocery shopping. You've been planning out your entire weeks. You're choosing not to listen. You can do that. But if you want to receive God's message, you actually have to listen to it. Okay, the very next one here. God's messages sometimes come from unexpected places. Do you, do you think Eglon was really thinking he's going to get stabbed in the gut? No, he thinks, oh, a message from God. Maybe God's telling me I'm doing a good job. You do realize from earlier, verse 12, the Lord strengthened Eglon. He thinks he's doing right, doesn't he? So now some guy comes in and says, I've got a message from God. Oh, wasn't the message he was expecting. The last one here is sometimes God's message is really sharp. Sharper than a two-edged sword, the Bible says. We don't like when God's message cuts us apart because that hurts. But sometimes that's necessary. You realize in this case it was necessary for freedom. We put ourselves in bondage by our own choices. We act like God's oppressing us, even though it's our poor choices that got us in that situation. And God's like, hey, I've got the way to fix it, but I'm going to have to do a little bit of slicing and dicing to get it done, which means you're going to have to give up some things. You're going to have to change some things. You're going to have to do some things different. But that hurts, I know, but every time, freedom's the result. If you follow the rules in any given situation, you usually end up with more fun, more freedom, because you're doing what's right. You break the rules. I, I had a guy yesterday on the highway. I was on Route 15. I was going <clears throat> I was going above the speed limit. I don't think there's any cops in the room. So I was going above the speed limit, and a guy went past me, had to have been going over 100 miles an hour. About three miles later, it was right by where that, uh, go, that, that tunnel goes under the little mountain there right before you heading towards Stratford area. Right after that, he was pulled over. I love those moments, okay? He's like bobbing and weaving in traffic, and then you're like, hey, <laughs> You break the rules, your freedom gets restricted. Well, sometimes in order to get freedom, God's got to slice a few things off. God's message can be really sharp. We're going to finish this chapter next week, but I want you to think about that this week. What's God saying to you that might hurt a little bit? What's God trying to tell you? You want freedom in this area? We're going to have to excise some things. We're going to have to cut some things out. Because God's message is going to be different for you than it might be for me because we all are at different levels in our Christian walk and we're all struggling with different things. But God's word is still the same. It's just how he chooses to talk to us that can be a little bit different. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do.